This is a ENN podcast for Field Exchange 66, a special edition on adolescent nutrition. Good day, listeners. My name is Natalie Sessions, and I'm one of the senior nutritionists at ENN. And I'm delighted today to speak to Amanda Morindi, who is one of the members of the advisory group for our recently published Field Exchange Issue 66, our special edition on school-age children and adolescent nutrition. Amanda works in the Ministry of Health in Uganda in the Nutrition Division and implements adolescent work in the National Referral hospital where they treat acute malnutrition. Today Amanda speaks to the realities of nutrition programming in this age group in Uganda and speaks to some of the key themes of our edition. Thank you so much Amanda, it's great to have and a real honor to have you speaking to us today. And I was wondering if you could start by speaking to your role in ENN's Field Exchange Edition 66, our special edition on nutrition in school-aged children and adolescent nutrition. How have you been involved in this edition? One, I'm really excited about the launch of the 66 and all the beautiful articles that uh, articulated work that is being done to improve adolescent health and nutrition all over the world. So I'm a member of the adolescent and school-going children working group that's under ENN. It's nested within ENN. And I was sourced to support the development of the FEC 66. And uh, so I joined a team of other members to advise on uh, what kind of articles we're looking at, what kind of work we want, and putting it together. Yeah, and ENN did the bulk of the work, but uh, it was a learning experience and enjoyable time. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I know, Amanda, your involvement in this advisory group has been so appreciated and that group has had a massive role in shaping the content and the key messages for the edition. So we so appreciate that. Coming back to your context, can you speak a bit to work happening in Uganda and the broader context in the country in relation to school-aged children and adolescent nutrition? Yes. So one, I'm glad that as a country, there's now an increasing interest in uh, these school age going children and adolescents because previously their needs were submerged in either guidelines for children under five years and they would, you know, put us a chapter or so uh, dealing with adolescents. And there was also this group of school age going children was really forgotten. So we were focusing on infants, children less than five years and pregnant and lactating women. And the needs for adolescents, especially the girls, were, you know, piled together with those of the pregnant lactating women of reproductive age. And yet we know that these adolescents have peculiar needs. So one, maybe just to give a good understanding of what an adolescent or who an adolescent is. So... An adolescent is an individual that's between 10 to 19 years, and they are growing and transitioning from childhood to adulthood. And in that transition, they have the different processes that are taking place, unique processes that are taking place. We have a lot of physiological changes, a lot of social changes that require attention, adequate, diverse diets, mental health support, psychosocial support, 
reproductive health support in order for us to see them grow to fulfill their potential and thrive as adults. So these adolescents in Uganda face unique challenges, some cut across the world, and these challenges, if not dealt with appropriately, will leave long-lasting negative outcomes on their health and well-being in their later life. So especially in the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, most of our schools have been closed since 2020 March. A few have gone back but come back because of the second wave. And this has left adolescents out of school exposed to many risk factors, things like alcohol and tobacco use, physical inactivity, early engagement in sex that's leading to unplanned or unintended pregnancies. And of course, we know unintended pregnancies in these adolescents that are still developing always come with uh, negative outcomes for the baby and for the adolescent herself. I feel like this is the time, you know, to stand up for these adolescents and uh, the school-age going children and involve different sectors, starting right at home, parents, the community, the health facilities, other line ministries and the government at large, all the arms of the government to stand up and uh, listen to these adolescents and try to understand their problem so that we are better placed to deal with them. It was really interesting to hear about the broader context in Uganda. And I was just wondering, linked to that, if there's any nutrition survey data that you can share, any prevalence of stunting and wasting and overweight in this particular age group. I know getting data in this age group is often really challenging. There's a study that was done that looked at some of the risk factors for the negative outcomes of these adolescents right in adulthood. They looked at all those different risk factors that I've talked about, but they also did some screening, some screening and compared it to the Uganda Demographic Health Survey data. So they found that the stunting levels were at 15% in uh, the central region of Uganda, overweight at 6.8%, underweight at about 6.5% of those adolescents. When they talked to some adolescents, they found that Yes, they knew about, you know, self-sex. They knew about some things about nutrition. They tried to look at their influencers for the information that they have on nutrition, on self-sex, on uh, HIV. But still they found that 41% of them were pregnant at the time of this survey. So this is a really sad situation given that we still have high rates of, uh, of anemia, you know, even in uh, these adolescents and our pregnant and lactating women. And yet they are, we know they're not yet fully developed. They all still have their energy, their nutrient requirements. And now they have babies that, you know, fetuses growing in their uteruses that also have their requirements for growth. So uh, this study also brought out the issue of adolescent-friendly hospitals facilities and found that most of our facilities are not adolescent-friendly. You know, we're either keeping the adolescents in a pediatric unit, and if she's pregnant, she goes into the mainstream, you know, maternity unit with, with the adults, and their needs are forgotten. You know, they are lumped into one of those groups. So care is not appropriate for them. The interventions for them should not be the same as a, a, a mature adult woman that is pregnant. So the, the, the nutrition situation already is poor, 
and given these issues of now increased infection rates of HIV and unintended pregnancy, that worsens the nutrition situation now. Yeah, so it would really be nice to hear of a study that post this lockdown era. How, how is our nutrition status? So I'm glad that uh, we have a demographic health survey coming up. We should have the results in next year. So hopefully we'll have a picture of, uh, you know, how badly this period has affected the nutrition status of our school-age-going children and adolescents. And I think it's also a time to advocate for inclusion of the complete age group, 10 to 19, mm -hmm. uh, 19 years into this demographic health surveys and other surveys that are done in the country. It's so interesting to hear about. And I think, like you say, it would be fascinating to see how COVID has changed the nutrition situation in the country, particularly for school-aged children and adolescents. And I think you've mentioned a few of the barriers, but I was wondering if there were any other barriers, particularly to policy development and implementation and challenges to prioritizing adolescent and school-aged children, particularly thinking about the amount of competing priorities that we face. So I mentioned a little about data, but I'll just reiterate and uh, emphasize because data is very important for decision-making. Without data, you have no case. You have uh, no point for advocacy. And so no one will listen to it because you don't have data. So as a country, we need to collect more systematic data on adolescent health, nutrition, and social well-being. Because we know uh, the causes of malnutrition are multifactor. We have the numerous. So we cannot just look at their well-being in isolation. We have to look at all the sectors that are needed for us to see good outcomes. But currently, we have scanty data. And UDHS, like I said, reports data on 10 to 14 years, under five pregnant lactating women. And so that limits our understanding of the complete spectrum of adolescent health and nutrition. So we don't have a good understanding. So we need to really advocate for them to increase that age category so that we have enough information. Then uh, for the data that we have, the data that is available is limited in terms of coverage and scope of the key health and nutrition issues or indicators. You know, then there's another problem that we have. I think it's uh, worldwide. We don't have agreed upon or they're being developed, but it's not yet being implemented in different countries, agreed upon indicators so that we can compare, you know, performance across the globe. So we need to develop that. And I, I hope as a working group for adolescents, it's something that we can look at and see how we can support in that area. Then we, because of these data gaps, it makes it very difficult for us to push for prioritization of these groups. Uh, it makes it difficult for us to advocate. Like you mentioned, we have a list of competing priorities, especially in these low-income countries. Now, COVID just came and made things a little more difficult. So there's need to understand the general global situation and then the context-specific situation per country as a government so that we're able to understand you know, how we're doing and then how we can prioritize increased resources and interventions and have interventions targeting these age groups. Then another gap that I see is the limited engagement of adolescents in policy development and decisions. You know, young adults and adolescents, they have a fundamental right 
to actively and meaningfully participate in matters that concern them because they understand these matters well. I think there's that notion of we have all been adolescents once, so we understand. And I don't think I understand the problems of an adolescent in this day and age, especially now that, you know, there's this uncertainty of COVID. There's been a lot, of, there's a lot of social media presence. So they have a lot of, you know, sources of information influencing their behavior. So we need to engage them. We need to allow them to sit on the table to express their ideas, to propose innovative approaches, to be consulted on decisions of public interest, you know, and also give them information so that we support them to make informed choices. So we need to engage with these adolescents. We need to stop that idea of, you know, sitting on the table and create interventions for people that, you know, we know nothing about. We have that minimal engagement. So I think that's a big barrier because then we don't understand exactly what these adolescents are going through. There's a three-lens approach. I don't know if you've heard of it by uh, DFID, you know, that helps us to look at them in three ways, to look at these adolescents as beneficiaries. And if I could get an example from the community activities that we do yeah, in terms of nutrition, uh, every time you're going into a community, you have to do a community assessment you have to involve, you know, the community resource persons right from the start, you know, so because those are our beneficiaries. And then as you engage, they become your partners. So that's another lens. So that's another lens that we need to see these adolescents as our partners so that we are collaborating with them in policy development and intervention design. You know, we consult and inform them. There's that, you know, back and forth exchange of information you know when we make these policies they're ours but when we make them in partnership with them then there's more ownership and they understand the channels in which they understand these key messages better so it can help them cascade and when we see them as partners we're also grooming and mentoring the future leaders because you know everyone has an expiry date and the younger generation is the one that's coming up so we want to grow gray in a world where we are confident of the leaders that we are leaving behind. So this can also be a way to mentor them into future leaders. Uh, we support them to lead these youth-initiated and directed interventions. Yeah, so I think that lens really made a lot of sense for me. Thanks, Amanda. Yeah. And I think one of the key messages that we have in Field 66 is around this engaging youth as being partners in projects. So I was wondering if you could give examples of interventions in your context that target adolescents and school-age nutrition. Particularly, it would be great to hear more of what the government is doing and leading on in the sector. Yeah, so there's a lot of work that is being done, and I'm glad there's a lot of work that is being done by the government and different sectors. Like I said in the beginning, health and well-being is not only dependent on nutrition. We, we have to work in collaboration. And so we have one of the coordinating bodies, the Office of the Prime Minister. And uh, with it and the nutrition division and other sectors, one we have developed and currently are rolling out the maternal infant young child and adolescent nutrition policy. And uh, we also have uh, guidelines that have been rolled out, health work at a community and health facility level. 
And it's interesting, at a community level, about three months ago, we were supporting the eastern part of the country, and we found the care groups, you know, the care group model for community interventions. We found care groups, and we found one for adolescents, boys and girls. And in that group, since they were not going to school, they decided, you know, we can do things at home. We can support backyard gardening. We can rear small animals. They had clubs and they would do music. They would do plays. They did work on COVID. So it was really interesting because they were engaged in that community. And they would get support from the BHTs, from the extension workers, from the community resource persons, and meet at the youth center at the district offices. So that was interesting. And uh, we are supporting that through the community, MICAN, which is the Maternal Infant Young Child and Adolescent Nutrition Intervention. Uh, the other aim of that MICAN is to maximize that second wind of opportunity because adolescence is our second wind of opportunity. We know that these children are experiencing a growth spurt. They are developing in different parts. And so they need good nutrition in terms of variety, amounts. And so uh, that section in the MICAN that we dedicated to adolescents is really supporting that. Then in addition, the division is developing food-based dietary guidelines. And we have also a section on adolescents. And the good thing about this is that it's looking at all forms of malnutrition. We are really looking forward to the dissemination. It's still in draft. And for dissemination, we have planned to use channels that can reach the adolescent comics, podcasts, school clubs, uh, to mention but a few. And we have other sectors in the Ministry of Health doing a lot of work. We have uh, AIDS control program that's doing a lot of work on adolescent-friendly HIV and AIDS, sexual reproductive health services. They are setting up uh, adolescent-friendly services, mainly targeting HIV-positive Adolescent, but they have a big nutrition need. So they're doing assessment, they're doing nutrition education for them just to support adherence and improve their health. And so these interventions, for example, that adolescent-friendly uh, intervention is an opportunity. It's a very big opportunity and a learning point for the different sectors that should do work in adolescence in terms of development, because they're still developing uh, in terms of nutrition and others, protection, you know, it's an opportunity for us to integrate into those models so that we all have adolescent-friendly spaces, both in the health and social services. This will increase access of these much-needed services for these adolescents. There's also increased research, both in the academia and implementation research that's geared towards adolescent health and nutrition. And this much-needed evidence that they're generating is what we need to sit down and revise our policies and interventions so that we target, we best target the problem effectively and efficiently. Then FECS published an intervention that is being implemented by uh, one of our partners, and uh, it deals with uh, the school age going children and uh, adolescents that are in primary schools. So that's about, I think, to about 14 years. So we are seeing IPs increasingly in, uh, adding adolescent issues into their programming and hiring, you know, experts that are in this area. 
It sounds like there's a, a wealth of different activities going on and a really exciting time to be engaging in adolescent and school-age nutrition. And just one point there, you mentioned IPs, and that's short for implementing partners? Yes, implementing partners, sorry. Okay. No, that's great to clarify that for our audience. Just okay. moving on to our last question, and I think you touched on it there. In FEC 66, we feature an article exploring Uganda's approach to school feeding. And you mentioned previously how COVID has really affected schools in the country and they've been closed for a long time. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit more to the shifts in school feeding and what has been done given that schools have been closed and how this gap has been filled in the country. Yes, that article that we published is by one of our implementing partners and they're doing uh, a lot of work in uh, the school age children and the younger adolescents, the younger age of adolescents. So currently their scope is uh, up to what would be our primary school, which is about maximum of 14 years. And they are, initially they had designed uh, interventions for school to to use the school approach, because we know it's very effective, efficient, and that's where these adolescents and school-age-going children spend most of their time. So it really made a lot of sense. But given effects of covid the project adapted. They moved to strengthen their community and health facility intervention. So in the health facility, some of the key activities under nutrition that they did were mentoring health workers on the provision of essential health and nutrition services for these school-aged children and adolescents. They've been supporting health workers to carry out mass deworming and uh, supplementation and immunization. So in the community, uh, some of the key activities that they are doing are uh, conducting dialogues on school feeding, you know, with the parents and they are targeting, they're trying to increase male involvement. So we know that um, most households are led by fathers and they are the key decision makers. But we've seen that there's been low involvement in different interventions. So one of the good things that they're doing is to increase their participation. And they're also supporting, and I'm sure this will start especially uh, in January when we'll open schools, they're supporting the establishment and redesigning of school gardens so that we build skills in these children to do backyard gardening, to increase on dietary diversity and promote environmental conservation. Because they know when they get these skills on planting nutritious foods, vegetables and fruits and rearing small animals, it's when we give them the knowledge and the skill, then we know that we have built their competence and they advocate her. So uh, the other thing that they're doing is uh, they're working with the community resource persons in the community. So they are mobilizing the key stakeholders, so the parents, the community leaders, counselors, religious leaders, and all those that are involved so that the sensitization for these leaders uh, in the community to increase buy-in for the intervention. They've also been mobilizing parents to adopt some school feeding guidelines, monitor school feeding and participate in uh, integrated child health day. Currently, the country has had uh, a polio outbreak and we think it is because of uh, our response to COVID restrictions in terms of movement to prevent that community spread of COVID. And so a lot of people were stay home. We had the stay home policy. 
And because of that, there was disruption in uptake of some of the health and nutrition services. So this is something that the study is doing, and we need a lot of advocacy in this area. Lastly, they're looking at this area of improving WASH. And this is a very good intervention, especially in this uh, COVID pandemic, where we want people to wash their hands all the time. And and we know children, it's a bit difficult, you know, for them to adhere to some of these SOPs. But yeah, so this wash component really is doing well. So at the end of the day, they want to see improved learning and development outcomes. Because we know when a child in, in this age group, an adolescent, is well nourished, they have psychosocial support, they are able to go to school, and while at school they are feeding well, because the schools are providing the key nutrients through the foods that they give. And then when they go back home, they are also cared for and the parents are involved in their well-being. Then we shall have boys and girls with good health and nutrition and good knowledge, attitude and practices. And they will see good behavior in terms of the behavior change that we want to see them having. Yeah. So it's a very interesting project. And as the ministry, we are going to work hand in hand with them and their different portfolios just to learn and support their outcomes. Yeah, it really does sound like a really interesting project and opportunities to get quite creative despite the challenges. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Amanda. We've taken up quite a bit of your time this morning, but it's been so interesting to hear your reflections on school-age children and adolescent nutrition and particularly focusing on what's happening in Uganda, which it sounds like it's a really exciting time in the country for nutrition in this age group. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Those are all of the questions for me. I'm not sure if you have anything else to say. Yeah, so so maybe finally, this is a great time to act and uh, the nutrition fraternity Pages, we are really doing as much as we can, and we, we want to improve the outcomes of our adolescents. And we believe that we'll do this through increased engagement with our adolescents so that we add them to the table and uh, improve their outcomes. Then we're going to strengthen the coordination so that we, we map out all these activities that are being done because there's a lot of work that is being done, a lot of research, a lot of implementation work. So using our coordination body as the government, obviously the Prime Minister, and also Ministry of Health, particularly the Nutrition Division, we are tracking currently, and uh, we want to strengthen the involvement of adolescents in our work. Because we understand that uh, we need a lot of evidence, we need a lot of contextual evidence to influence policy and improve practice so that at the end of the day we have holistic care for our adolescents um, in Uganda. Mm. So thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Amanda. It was fantastic to talk to you. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you for listening. You can read more about our special issue of Fields Exchange on the nutrition of adolescents and school-aged children on ENN's website.